are, are new to Lighthouse or if you've missed the last couple of weeks. Oh, Charlie, I love you so darn much. Thank you. You know. You know. I'm a fish and I'd start drying out the moment I come up here. So if you're new to Lighthouse or if you've missed the last few weeks, we have just begun a very slow journey through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells the story not of, it's not a brand new story, it is the continuation of the story that was told in the first four Gospels, where the, the men and women who had tasted and seen that God was good and, seen and been with Jesus began to share the Gospel message beginning in Jerusalem and then radiating out towards the end of the earth. And as we've talked about already, Jesus specifically looked at his disciples and began to widen their understanding of what they were called to do. He said, listen, this is good news of great joy, not just for the people of Israel, but for all people, all nations. And so you will be my witnesses, beginning here in Jerusalem and into the kind of wider region of Samaria, or, uh, Judea, and even to the untouchables in Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. That's what you're going to do, but... If you try to do that by your own strength, you're not going to represent my heart accurately. In fact, all you're going to do is make an unholy mess. And so before you go, wait. Because my Father has promised to send you His Spirit. And that's the same Spirit that anointed me at the beginning of my, when I was baptized and empowered me throughout my public ministry, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, that same spirit that you saw me use to raise Lazarus from the dead and drive out demons and feed crowds, that same spirit that raised me from the dead, that spirit is going to come upon you. And when he does, then nothing will be able to stand in your way. So wait, and then when the spirit comes, go. And, and then Jesus uh, ascended before them and and. And that's exactly what they did. They trudged back to Jerusalem after they watched Jesus ascend into heaven and they went back up the stairs into that upper room where they had shared a meal on the Passover with Jesus. And there were about 120 disciples gathered in that upper room and for about 10 days, they waited. And while they waited, they prayed. They prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. They prayed for the courage to, to do what Jesus was commissioning them to do, namely to be his witnesses, his ambassadors. They prayed for the words to say. And then, about 10 days after Jesus ascended on the, on the feast day of Pentecost, Pentecost means 50, which means this, is, this took place about 50 days after Jesus was arrested and crucified, and 10 days after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. On the feast day of Pentecost, a day when there are pilgrims from all over the known world that have gathered in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jewish men and women that gathered from the four corners of the world because they're celebrating the, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. But God had a different harvest in mind on that particular Pentecost. And so on that day of Pentecost, as the disciples are gathered in that upper room, the Holy Spirit comes and everything changes. Because suddenly these men and women who have been timid and hiding out for fear that the same thing that befell their rabbi, their, their, their Lord, Jesus, would fall on them, those same men and women who had been just terrified that the Roman authorities or the Jewish you know, religious leaders would point at them and say, you're next, these guys and these gals 
are so filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit that, that that room can no longer contain them, and they just feel compelled out the doors and into the streets. And as they go out the doors, they begin to speak, but it's not in languages that they learned. Although many of them are uneducated Galileans, they begin to speak in languages that actually are the, the home languages of all the men and women in the street. So people begin to hear them worshiping God in their own native tongues. I think it's a reminder, by the way, and we didn't talk about this last week, but I think that's a reminder of the fact that although God calls us to be unified in one body in Christ, he does not call us to be uniform and exactly the same. He actually doesn't say there's going to be one world language. He says, no, all of you can worship me in your own tongue because you are unique. And so the gospel message begins to go out to all of these people from all over the ends of the earth. And in a lot of ways, this is the first fruits of what's going to come. Because remember what Jesus said, wait till the Holy Spirit comes, then you'll be my witnesses beginning here in Jerusalem and in Judea, but ultimately it will reach the ends of the earth. Well, the ends of the earth have come to Jerusalem on Pentecost, and they begin to hear the good news and it begins to draw a crowd, naturally, because there are people at 9 o'clock in the morning who are shouting the praises of God in lots of different languages, and people are going, wait a minute, I understand them. What's going on? But there are some in the crowds that scoff and mock and say, ah, they've just had too much to drink. It's just a bunch of drunkards, right? Because there's always somebody who, who when faced with something they don't understand, will dismiss it and treat it as, as, as ridiculous or commonplace, just mock it, we will always encounter that. And one of the things we're going to notice as we go through the book of Acts is that in virtually every single chapter, there is some element of rejection. As we begin to do the things God is calling us to do, every single person will not ultimately say, oh my goodness, I'm cut to the heart. So we need to be prepared for rejection, and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And even on that day of Pentecost, there are people in the crowds going, ha, 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 a bunch of drunkards. And then Peter, one of the disciples, one that had, had walked with Jesus throughout his whole public ministry, Peter stands up, and he begins to preach the, the, the first public declaration of the gospel message in history. The first time that it's publicly shouted to the rooftops. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Because I want to read it, and then we'll talk about it. So there's a crowd of people that have gathered around these disciples who have spilled out of the upper room. And beginning in verse 14, we read, Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live here in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk as many of you suppose. I mean, it's only nine in the morning. I don't know what he means. Like, okay, so like at noon, would that be more like, whatever. No, this is what was spoken about, about the, by, the, by the prophet Joel, and he points to a prophecy that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. They will speak my words to you. 
I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. It was basically like God was saying, this is my guy. And he proved it through all of the things he did in front of you, which God did amongst you through him. And as you yourselves know, you saw it with your own eyes. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then because remember that Peter is talking to people who are of Jewish descent, people who trace their lineage through the King David. He points back to some prophecies that David himself had said, prophecies like, I will always have, God promised me to always have somebody on the throne of David, and that my body won't see decay. And he says, today this is being fulfilled in front of you. Not because God has, did that to David, but because Jesus is the fulfillment, Jesus who is from the lineage of David, is the fulfillment of those prophetic utterances that David preached so long before. David said this about Jesus, the Messiah. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. These were the words of David, but they were not true of David. They were true of Jesus. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses. He points to the disciples who are with him standing up there, 120 of them, and the 11 apostles that are standing with Peter, and he says, hey, we're all witnesses to this. Lost my place. Where was I? 23, let's go. 33, that's even better. <laughs> Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So Jesus has been exalted to the Father. He's received the Holy Spirit and he has poured out what you now see in here. He didn't keep the Holy Spirit to himself. He's given it to us and that's the reason why for what you're seeing right now. For David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior, Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, well, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you do, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
the same spirit you've seen poured out on us. This promise isn't just for you. It's for your children and for all who are far off, including us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words which are not recorded here, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And when we take into consideration the fact that there was only about 120 in that upper room and 3,000 were baptized that day, that means that the church grew by 2,500% in one day. There's a reason why Jesus said, wait before you go. Wait till the Holy Spirit becomes... Because on your own, there's not a single life you can change, not a single trajectory of anybody's life that you can tweak at all. But with the Holy Spirit, nothing can stand in your way. Thank you. So, as I read this, I cannot help but think about the messenger that God uses. Because Peter is the most unlikely of people for God to to use to be the very first person to share the gospel publicly. I mean, think about Peter. He's not a theologian. He's a fisherman. He spends his day gutting fish and mending nets. That is what he was trained to do. And you go, oh, yeah, but, you know, he spent all of this time with Jesus. Yeah, and he spent most of that time being confused, constantly missing the point. He had this chronic case of foot and mouth syndrome that even Jesus didn't seem to be able to cure him of, right? That, Peter. There's hope for us, Mike. Not only that, but, but two months prior, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, on the night that Jesus is arrested, as he's undergoing a trial that would ultimately culminate with him losing his life, Peter is in this public group of people around a fire, and somebody goes, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he publicly denies even knowing Jesus, not once, but three times. If there was anybody in Jerusalem on that day who should have been disqualified from getting to preach the gospel message, it's him. And yet, God chooses to use him and to empower him and to compel him to stand up and to teach powerfully and in such a radically different manner from the the fear and trepidation that he had kind of exhibited prior to. He's the kind of guy who had shown himself to be a wilting flower and suddenly he's standing up basically calling them out as murderers to their face in the very city where his Messiah, his rabbi, had been murdered not, you know, 50 days before. Radically different. And if somebody were to ask me, how do I know that the tomb was empty and that Jesus actually raised from the dead, I would point to his disciples as the number one evidence. These are men and women who are so radically transformed that they were willing to give their lives for the gospel message, for the hope that they had found in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I am not about to die for something I know to be a lie. I might die for something I know to be true, but to have all of these men and women who are ultimately give their lives for something, that is the most powerful evidence I can point to the fact that the, the grave was not only empty, but Jesus really did rise from the dead. But that's not where we're at at all today. What I really want to focus on is not, not the messenger. I want to focus on the message, the gospel message that he preaches, because it's powerful. And his message, we can boil it down to one word, Jesus. Jesus is the good news. 
We know Jesus, right? We've heard a lot about him. So much so, in fact, that I think in some ways, the fact that Jesus, who is a ray of hope in the midst of darkness, Jesus, who is like water poured out on dry soil that gives life, new life, from what was once parched and dead, Jesus, who is like breath to starving lungs. We've heard and know so much about Jesus that in some ways, the gospel's actually lost its power. It's become diluted by our familiarity. They, they say that you know, familiarity breeds contempt, or if anything, it kind of breeds an almost sense of apathy. I mean, take, take the Christmas message, the audacity that God would take on flesh and be born as a child to a couple, not, not to kings in a palace, but to a couple of kids in a barn. That's audacious. That's ridiculous. And yet we've heard it so many times that it's not only familiar, it's actually bordering on boring at some points. Forgive me if you were like super Christmas, you know, I mean, but sometimes it's like we know it so well we stop listening. Or take the Easter message. The fact that God would die for us when we've screwed up and he hasn't screwed up and he would give his life for us on a cross that's ridiculous. That's powerful. And yet, because I don't even know how many Easter messages I've heard, but because I walk in there knowing the punchline, it lacks the punch. Or we take the cross, this implement of torture. Rome, who was skilled at killing people, this was the worst way to kill a person to make them suffer that they could come up with. And we've taken this implement of torture and we decorate our homes with it. Or we tattoo it on our skin. Or we, we encrust it with jewels and we wear it as jewelry. I think in some ways we have become so familiar with Jesus, the focus of the gospel, that the gospel itself has begun to lose its power. And by the way, the people in the crowds that day, the people in Jerusalem, some of whom lived there and others whom had come from far and wide to be there for that, that Feast of Pentecost, they knew Jesus too. Or at least they thought they did. They'd heard the stories. Oh, Jesus, yeah, I was, I was at a wedding once. They served some really good wine there. I, I was at a wedding once with him. He, wasn't he Joseph's son? Yeah, I know that guy. He was a really good carpenter. And, and Jesus... Isn't he that guy that had that like midlife crisis and left his carpentry business and went off because he had messianic, a messianic complex and he started gathering disciples around him? I heard some of the things he did. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. I, I heard that he healed a bunch of people, gave a, a guy his sight back by rubbing mud in his eyes. I mean, come on. Couldn't he have just said, have your sight, but he has to rub mud in his eyes? That was weird. Or, or he, he healed a bunch of lepers, even touched them. That was crazy. Couldn't he have just said be healed? Or, or I also heard just a, couple, you know, just a couple months away ago in Bethany, there was a guy named Lazarus with dead. Jesus straight up rose him from the dead, or so I heard. I, I, a buddy of mine actually met Lazarus just a couple of weeks ago. Right? And man, you ever hear, hear that guy preach? That boy could preach. And it wasn't like the, the other rabbis, like Gamaliel and others that I've heard, because those guys just quote other rabbis. But this Jesus, man, he taught with authority. Almost like he was preaching the very words of God. I get, 
I totally understand why people said that he was a prophet of God. The first one we've had in 600 years. I get why people thought that. I also understand why people thought he might be the Messiah, our long-awaited Redeemer. He certainly fit the bill. At least I thought he did. But the problem is they also knew the next part of the story. Because Jesus, when he had entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, was greeted with crowds who were clamoring to be near him and were giving him the Messiah treatment. And they were shouting things like, Hosanna, save us, because they were sure that he was going to be the long-awaited Messiah. But then as they spent time with him over that week and they got to know him, they began to realize, wait a minute, this isn't the kind of Messiah we anticipated. When we have our expectations... And then we have reality, and those pictures don't match. We have to make a decision. We can only hold on to one. We have to tear the other one up. Sometimes we tear up our expectations and we embrace reality, but for these people, they had embraced their expectations and they tore up reality. They began to tear up the King of kings and Lord of lords. They rejected him because he didn't He didn't hang out with the right people. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors and other social pariahs. And he didn't hate the right people. He didn't didn't get in the uh, the Roman centurion's face and condemn them. He didn't raise up an army and kick them out like they anticipated. And so... Once Jesus had disappointed enough people, once he'd rubbed enough well-connected people the wrong way, they finally said enough is enough. And they, they pulled on some of their connections with the Roman hierarchy and they ultimately had him executed. So yeah, they knew Jesus. Or at least they thought they did. And so they'd written him off. They'd gone on with their regularly scheduled lives. And they continued to pray the same prayers. God, send your Messiah. Redeem your people. Have your way with us. Never realizing that the Messiah had come and they had so completely rejected him. And so on that Pentecost day, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up. And despite the fact that he is a fisherman, that he, he couldn't exegete his way out of a paper bag, that he would, he would have flunked, you know, Talmud 101 or whatever, this Peter stands up and he begins to connect theological points from thousands of years of Jewish history in a way that nobody else ever had. And this, this is the message that Peter preaches to them kind of paraphrased my own words. Brothers and sisters, fellow Israelites, (laughs) these people you hear, they're not drunk like you think. This is a fulfillment of what Joel promised all those years before. That in the final days, God would pour out His Spirit, not just on a couple, but upon everyone, irrespective of gender or age or socioeconomic status. And they would prophesy in His name and that you would see signs and wonders that you had not yet seen. And that ultimately anybody who called upon the name of the Lord God would be saved. Anyone. 
And I got to tell you guys, that what you see happening, what you're writing off as drunkenness, that is Joel's promise fulfilled. It's happening before your very eyes today as we speak. This Jesus, you knew him. You, you heard the things he did. You saw with your own eyes the people he healed, the way he taught, the miracles he did. Those were God's calling card, his stamp of approval. This Jesus was his Messiah, and yet you rejected him. You did more than reject him. You murdered him with the help of our Roman occupiers. But you made a mistake because you, in murdering him, stood against God and God sent him. Who are you to think you can stand against the creator and sustainer of this world? You thought, God sent him and you thought you could hold him down with nails. God sent him and you thought you could bury him in a cave, roll a stone in the way and that would be that. You could go on with your lives. God sent him, and you thought that death could hold him, but death could not hold him any more than a woman who is in birth pangs could hold her child inside of her. He was going to return because God sent him, and nothing can stand against God. I got to tell you guys, I saw Jesus resurrected with my own eyes. I ate with him. He let me touch the nail holes. He let me see the, the wound from the spear in his side. He taught us for 40 days. And by the way, I'm not the only one who saw this. Ask any of us who are standing up here. They'll tell you the same thing. But we didn't just see him resurrected from the dead. We also watched him ascend into heaven where he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God just like David prophesied would happen. Jesus is not only the king over Israel, he's the king over the entire world, over all of God's creation. And he holds within his hands life and death and judgment. It's his. And this is who you killed. I got to tell you, this Jesus whom you rejected, whom you had murdered, God has made him not only the savior of humanity, the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed redeemer that you, in, that you were waiting and praying for, but he has also made him Lord of lords and the worthy Lord of your lives. That's who Jesus is, and you murdered him, but God raised him from the dead. And as Peter is preaching to these people, keep in mind who, who are his audience is. They're Jews, many of whom live there, but others who have come from all over the place out of obedience to God's demand that on those feast days they would come to Jerusalem to offer their first fruits. So these are God-fearing men and women who have spent their lives trying to curry the favor of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are men and women who have spent their lives trying to submit to the Torah, to the law of Moses, to be good followers of God so that he would accept them. And as Peter is speaking, dread begins to build in their hearts because they begin to be cut to the heart and his words begin to penetrate and they begin to realize, oh crud, 
probably a little bit harder word in their mind. Oh my goodness. We thought we were rejecting a false Messiah, but what we're realizing right now, real time, is that we actually rejected God's Messiah. And in rejecting God's Messiah, we have allayed ourselves. We have, we have put ourselves in opposition to God. And suddenly they're beginning to realize that all of their resumes don't matter anymore. Doesn't matter how much of the scriptures they'd memorized. Doesn't matter how good they had been and how many rules they had followed and how many times they'd rejected those temptations to disobey. Didn't matter how many people they'd helped. All of a sudden that stuff was garbage because they had stood against God and lost. And they're left going. They, they basically are left with only one question to ask Peter and the disciples that are standing up there. What do we do? As the weight of the reality of their choices begins to rest upon their shoulder, as the darkness of despair begins to set in, they, they go, what do we do? How, how, what, what, what can you do? We've, we have put ourselves against God. And it's in that moment when things seem most bleak, when the weight of their choices is most heavy on their shoulders, that a ray of hope pierces the darkness of their despair. And the goodness of God's amazing grace breaks through. We sung a song earlier this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, it's difficult to recognize just how sweet God's grace is until we are faced with the wretched state of our lives. We can't appreciate it any more than any of you are going to want to go and sit down and have the dentist drill and fill your cavities until you get to see the x-rays, right? Then you're like, go ahead. But before that, forget it. Get that, th get that sharp thing out of my mouth, man. That morning, at nine in the morning, as Peter and the disciples began to worship God in languages they had never learned. And the people are drawn to hear it. He has the opportunity to share the gospel message and the Holy Spirit leads his words just like Jesus promised, I will give you the words to say. You don't even have to worry. And, and Peter, an uneducated fisherman, speaks words of such profanity that, that they are cut to the heart and they're like, what do we do? What recourse do we have? And Peter's response floors them because it is so radically different 
from any other king that this world has ever seen. Remember, Jesus going to the cross, the world looks at it as a loss, right? He lost. He tried to stand up to Rome and he lost and he lost his life. And, and actually, Paul will say later on that Jesus going to the cross, that was his triumph, that that was really his coronation. He triumphed over sin and death on the cross. That's where he was crowned as the king of God's creation. And Peter points to them and says, this Jesus is very different from any of the other kings of this world because normally when a king comes to power, they ascend to the throne and they finally have the power, the reins in their hands. They consolidate that power and they do so by executing anybody who has spoken out against him and said, no, I don't want that to be my king. That's exactly what Herod had done. Herod, who had come to be kind of crowned king over the region of Israel, when he rose to power, he executed thousands of people that he thought had stood in opposition to him to basically say to the rest of the region, you do not speak back to me. I'm king and you're not, and I hold the power of your life and death in my hands, so submit. And Jesus, Jesus is a very different king because he does not need to consolidate his power. He does not need to prove anything. He had already proven his power when he went to the cross and he laid his life down. I could, I could, I've got an army of angels that I could call, guys. Don't worry about protecting me because this is what God, why God sent me. And he doesn't need to execute any, any enemies because he's already overcome the enemies he came to conquer, namely sin and death. He defanged them when he went to the cross. And he showed just how powerless they were when God raised him from the dead. So he does not need to punish anyone. And because of that, instead of condemning, instead of saying, I, this one spoke out against me and this one cried, you know, crucify him and that one, I saw you, kill him. Instead of that, he, he raises his nail-pierced hands and he looks at these crowds through Peter and he says, come. Come to me, all of you that right now are cut to the heart. Come to me, all of you who stood in opposition to me and clamored for my crucifixion. Come. Because I'm not a spiteful king. I'm a loving king. I don't demand your death. I already died for you because I love you and I don't want to go through life without you. So come to me, all of you who are burdened with, with your shame and your guilt right now, and I will take it from your shoulders and I'll give you rest because I love you. And 3,000 that day respond. And the church blows up. And that's just the beginning. Those are just the first fruits. On the day of Pentecost, a day that was set aside in the calendar year to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest, God takes his first harvest of his people. But so what, right? That's always the question we have to ask. And all of you who write papers right now in high school, your 3.5 paragraph essay, we've gotten to the fifth paragraph. So what? Why have we just spent all of this time talking about this? 
What are we supposed to do with a message that a Jewish disciple of Jesus preached to a bunch of Jews 2,000 years ago? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, I think that you and I are a lot like those men and women in the streets of Jerusalem. We have become so familiar with Jesus that we think we know him. It's easy to say we know him a lot better than they did because we have access to his words that are highlighted in red. We, we, um, we've heard a lot of messages. We, you can't even get away from it. Even if you don't want Jesus, if you watch any of the you know, Charlie Brown Christmas special, you've heard the gospel message, can't get away from it, right? We've been to Easter, we know it. And the problem with knowing it is we've heard it and in hearing it over and over and over again, it has begun to dilute the power of the gospel to cut us to the heart. It has begun to dull the blade of the gospel. We have become so confident of our ability to be good people that it has blinded us to our need for a Savior. Oh, dang it, I screwed up. I just have to be better. I have to try harder. That's moralism. That's not Christianity. That is moralism. And it is part of the American ethos. This is the air we breathe and the water we drink is I must try harder. And it has blinded us to our desperate need for a Savior because we are going to save ourselves. Our self-sufficiency has blinded us to our desperate need for a Lord and not just any Lord. There's many Lords in this world but we need the Lord of Lords to be our God, our King, to give direction to our lives. That's what we need. And we cannot possibly change by our own strength. There's no way about it. It doesn't matter how much we intellectually believe. By our own strength, we're done. We need God's Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that empowered His disciples. We need His Spirit in our lives if we have any hope to change, let alone to represent His heart to a world that is very doubtful of anybody who claims to know truth. There's way too many snake oil salesmen out there. And the last thing we want to do is confirm in their hearts that we are just more snake oil salesmen that won't even use our own product. And that there's no difference from us or on our families, than anybody else. So we are way too much like those men and women. And this morning, the message I hope that you hear is that apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost. And so am I. It doesn't matter how long you've been going to church doesn't matter how much scripture you've memorized. It doesn't matter how much money you put in the basket at the end of the day. It doesn't matter how many good things you do throughout the week. It doesn't matter how successful you are or how successful your children are or how successful your grandchildren are. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost. But Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to rescue you from the most American of gods that we tend to worship, of self-sufficiency. He's come to rescue you from the other so-called gods that our society worships, things like greed and popularity and lust and addiction. 
He's come to rescue you from it. And he doesn't condemn us because we have been self-sufficient. He doesn't condemn us because we have tried to do it on our own strength. He says, come and let me give you rest. And to those of us this morning who go, oh, I definitely know I'm not self-sufficient. Jesus couldn't possibly use me. Well, he's shown that he's willing to use people who are imperfect, people like Peter, so he can use us too. And he says, come to me, you who are weary and weighed down with your shame and your guilt, and I will give you rest. I have a place for you, not simply as a member of my kingdom, but as a member of my family. Your identity is not what you've done. Your identity is not what has been done to you by people who should have been trustworthy and loving. Your identity is not what you're going to do. Spent way too much of my life thinking that I was a, an attorney in the making because my dad was, and I desperately wanted his approval, so I got to follow him in the family business if I ever hope to have his approval. You're not what you're going to do. You're not what you're doing, and you're not what you have done. You're my child. You're my daughter. You're my son, created in my image. And by the way, I gave my life so that you could live for me. So come, and I will give you a renewed purpose. You get to represent my heart. You get, to, you get to shout from the rooftops how sweet is the grace you have found. Because I take wretches and I make saints out of them. My family's full of a bunch of wretches. I know because I'm one of them, and I'm so grateful. Let me remind us, we are not here this morning because we have it all together. We are here this morning, and I'm including myself in this, because we are the first to say, I am, I am a sinner who desperately needs a Savior. And I have tried to run my life by my own wisdom, and I have failed miserably. And I am here to say, I desperately need, I need the Lord of Lords to be King of my life, to guide me, and I desperately need His Spirit to fill the caverns of my heart, and to breathe new life back into me. So that's who I am. And if you don't feel worthy to be here, welcome. You're in good company, right? So what is Peter's response to their question of what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the repentance of your sins. Now let's talk about those two words. Repent is a military term. In the military, it's when you're walking and the, the drill sergeant would say, repent, you turn and you walk the other way, right? And that's what he's saying. Turn from the things that you have been walking after. Turn from the things that you have been running after, hoping to find life in them. Because they cannot give you what you're after. All of your climbing the corporate ladder will not succeed because you put your ladder against the wrong wall. It doesn't matter how much you accumulate because the size of your house and the size of your barn cannot save you. The size of your bank account has no ability to save your soul. It doesn't matter how many friends you have on social media or how many likes you get to something you post. That is not who you are. So turn from those things and find your life in me. And when you do, don't keep it a secret. Let everybody know about it. 
And the way the church has been doing that, the way the body of Christ has been doing that since the day that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, the way the church has responded and publicly acknowledged their decision to follow Jesus is through baptism. Now, let me be very clear. Baptism is not magical. Baptism does not save you. We are saved by grace. Through faith in Jesus, not by anything we do, so that we can never say, I earned this. I jumped through all the hoops. And no amount of water can wash away the mistakes you've made or wash away the self-sufficiency you have. But baptism is much like this ring that I wear on my finger. It symbolizes something deeper that has happened. I am no longer my own. My heart belongs to another. I have covenanted with a woman for the rest of my life, regardless of how well it goes, regardless of how different we might be. For better or for worse, we're in it. And in the same way, your baptism is a public declaration that for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, Even though my body may waste away because of cancer, even though my children might go off the rails, even though I don't have it all together, I am loved and he has given himself for me, therefore he can have all of me. And I want to let my family know that I'm in. I want to let myself know that I'm in. And if we are willing To say, Jesus, I want you to be not only the Savior of my life, but my Lord. I want to follow you. And if we are willing to acknowledge that before men, publicly acknowledge it, then Jesus says he will pour out his Holy Spirit upon us and breathe new life into our dry bones so that we can become an army of ambassadors that shines light, not so that people will be attracted to us, but they will be attracted to the hope we have found, that they will ultimately be pointed back towards him. That's what we're invited into. So this morning, there's a couple of responses that this message, Peter's message, naturally invites us into. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Two responses. Response number one. There are some of us in here who have acknowledged, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want you to be Lord. You've prayed a prayer hundreds of times. But this morning, you are being cut to the heart because you realize that you have been living self-sufficiently. Or you have been living as if he really isn't your Lord. You, you, you can be my Savior, but don't ask me for my life. Don't ask me for this. I need this. And this morning, you're beginning to recognize that Jesus... The one that this gospel points us to is like a lifeline to a drowning person. You are that drowning person and you want to grip hold of him like a person who is holding onto the lifeline like your life depends on it because it does. And then there are some others of us this morning who have heard this. We've been preached by our parents and our grandparents. We've been dragged to church on Christmas or Easter and you're here this morning, you're realizing... I need to say yes, even though I don't know what that means. And maybe it's the first time and you're saying, I'm in. Then although there's nothing magical about a prayer, a prayer of acceptance of the gift of Jesus is simply that. It's saying, I'm in and I want to follow you. It is not the finish line. It is the first line to a lifetime of following him and submitting your life. And you're going to stumble all over the place. I certainly do. 
but it simply begins by accepting the gift of grace. And I'm going to pray. And every time I pray this, by the way, it's different. So please don't think that there, this is a magical incantation and you have to do it exactly like this. I'm going to pray. And if, what I, if the words I say echo the, the cry of your heart, then go ahead and say it either to, you know, in your heart or you can even say it verbally. Just go ahead and close your eyes for a moment. Jesus, I need you. I have tried to do life on my own strength, and I'm not strong enough. This morning, I come to the point where I say, I need you to be my Savior, and I need you to be my Lord. Jesus, I accept the gift that you purchased on the cross when you exchanged your life for mine. I know I can't do anything to earn it. And so I will receive this gift that is so much bigger than anything I could ever buy myself. And Jesus, today, I choose to follow you. But the rest of this day and every day that I have breath in my lungs, I choose to follow you, have your way with me. And I pray that your spirit would fill me up so that I can reflect your heart. Jesus, in your name, amen. If you prayed that, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, know that there is no longer condemnation for you. You are a different person. That doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. That doesn't mean that the enemy's not going to come. If anything, we've seen that the enemy comes stronger and attacks harder and begins to try to steal the hope that are those seeds that have found purchase in your heart. But if you prayed it, the next thing that Peter says is do not keep it a secret. Let people know about it. And the way the church has been doing I would say a couple things. One, tell somebody, tell a family member, tell a friend, tell me. Tell somebody sitting next to you, I don't care who, but tell somebody. And then secondly, publicly declare it, celebrate it. And we want to do that with you. The church has been doing it for centuries through baptism. Now, I don't want you to feel like you need to be impulsive. So you may recognize I want to get baptized. In fact, I've been thinking about last time we did baptisms, we had somebody who's been following Jesus for 60 years choose to finally get baptized. I love it, and I was so proud of him. But you might decide, you know what, I need to publicly declare it through baptism, but I want my family to be here because I want them to hear it too. And if that's the case, if you would like to, to think about it and then plan a time with us, then on your connection card, just write, I want to get baptized, and we will plan a time to celebrate with you. But there is something so raw and real about the early church responding in that moment and 3,000 people choosing to get dunked and baptized that day. Remember, baptism is simply symbolic of you dying to yourself as you go under the water and being raised to do new life. The old is gone and the new has come. That's all it is. There's nothing magical about the water. So today, on faith, and we may not use it, but I've got a baptismal right there. It's warmed, it's ready. I got my board shorts on underneath here and I brought extra towels. So if you are ready today, I'm going to just stand over here and you just come up and talk to me and we will go back there and in a little bit we will, we will have some baptisms in this place if you are ready. And if you want to wait until you can invite some of your family to be here, then just let us know on the connection card also. But now, 
as a family who has been cut to the heart and has recognized the audacity of a God who loves us when we stand in open rebellion to him, let's celebrate as those who have been lost and have been given new life. And those who have been, who have, like Peter, completely blown it. And he says, no, 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 I want to use you as my ambassadors of hope to others who desperately need to hear it. Let's just respond as a family.